Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Tump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in our last program in the series, Creation in the Book of Job, you were highlighting the use of the name of God that goes hand in hand with the theme of creation so prevalent in the book. Yes, Scott. The name which occurs 48 times in the entire Old Testament 31 of those times being in the book of Job. Wow. The name Shaddai. Which translated means God Almighty. That's right. And we were considering how that name is a reflection of his power as it is displayed in creation. And so first of all, let's point out that each of the main characters in the book refer to God as Shaddai at least once, Hmm. all that is except for Satan, who is obviously going to totally shy away from the fact that God is almighty. And we've read some of what Job says about the Almighty and also what Eliphaz said in chapter 5. Now, I'm going to skip Bildad for now, who also refers to God as Shaddai, and we're going to look in our program today at what Zophar, the third of Job's friends, says. Again, we need to be reminded of the context that these friends are responding to Job with. He is defending himself, in essence saying that, you know, he wants to die. He doesn't deserve this kind of treatment that he recognizes God has afflicted him with. He doesn't talk about Satan being even the mediary of Mm. this. He realizes that God is the one who has this heavy hand on him. And so each one actually more strongly rebukes Job for defending himself and saying that he doesn't deserve this treatment. And so we come to the third friend, and we're going to see that he's the most strongly critical of Mm. Job. This is really strange. You know, here Job is suffering, and his friends, who originally come to comfort him, now are criticizing him and rebuking him. We come to Zophar then, in Job chapter 11. We'll start reading at verse 7, because what we're seeing is this connection Mm. that all these different speakers make between the name of God, Shaddai, being the Almighty, and the context in which they're referring to him, and that being creation. Mm. Job 11, 7. So far says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? There's that word, Shaddai. They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? So let's stop there for a moment. And we see that in Zophar's mind, he's thinking of the expanse of the universe. He's thinking of the depth of Sheol and the measure of the earth. And here, I don't think we should understand that he knew what God had done in calling together the angels there in chapter 1. But when he says, or calls an assembly, what he's referring to there is the fact that the Almighty, when he calls the entire angelic realm, assemble. You know, they Mm. report. And remember, Satan was among them when God called that great assembly. And so this is a reference to just the power of the Almighty in not only creating everything, but having the authority to call the entire angelic realm to order. And then Zophar says, who can restrain him? In other words, who could stop God from doing anything? Well, Dr. Scripture, you've stressed the idea that God's name, Shaddai, is especially associated with his identity as creator, but it also seems that it is used to describe him when he acts as the judge of man. You know, that's a great observation, Scott. In fact, that term Shaddai does relate both to God as creator and God as judge. And some of the references that we've read previous, it really was more about God judging man and so forth. And so that brings up a very important point. 
because there is a pronounced and crucial connection between God's identity as creator and the claim he makes as having the right to be judge. Because you see, it's only right. If he makes it, it's his. In other words, he establishes the rule. It's his and he can judge it. And, you know, we've seen that principle many times in the Bible. One passage I think of in particular is Psalm 89. Well, Scott, since you've brought up something Scripture says, (laughs) let's read it to confirm this idea is not just something I say. The well-known verse equating God having created something with his ownership of it is Psalm 89, 11, and 12. So go ahead and read it, Scott. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. The world and all it contains, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. Now, from just those two statements, we only see the connection between God creating and owning the world and all it contains. However, if we pull back a little and look at the larger context of those statements, we'll also see the connection between God creating the world and his judgment of it. Let's go back to verse 5 of Psalm 89. And the heavens will praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like thee, O mighty Lord? Thy faithfulness also surrounds thee. Thou dost rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, thou dost still them. And this is verse 10. Thou thyself didst crush Rahab like one who is slain. Thou didst scatter thine enemies with thy mighty arm. So notice the reference to the counsel of the holy ones in verse 7. What is their reaction to the Lord of hosts? They fear him. Yet these are awesome beings in and of themselves, beings that humans even sometimes confuse with seeing God. I think of that scene in the beginning of Job when all the sons of God the beings we understand to be all the angels, good and evil, Mm -hmm. presented themselves before the Lord. Now, I suppose the evil angels are not included in the council of the holy ones, (laughs) but the evil angels surely fear God too. Well, you are absolutely right about that. And we know that because James tells us. In James 2.19, it says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Dr. Scripture, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that indicates fear. (laughs) (laughs) And why would they fear? Because they know at some point their creator is going to judge them and they will all be cast into the abyss. Yeah. Isn't that what the legion of demons pleaded with Jesus not to do to them? Mm -hmm. Don't cast us into the abyss. So Jesus let them enter the herd of swine. That is what happened. A demonstration of Jesus' power and authority to judge even the angelic realm. And then again, in Psalm 89, we found a reference to the Lord's judgment was in verse 10, when you read, Scott, the Lord crushed Rahab, and that's a reference to the nations, and Egypt in particular. And we all know what the Lord did to Egypt. Indeed. And in the second part of the verse, it says, he scattered his enemies with his mighty arm. What immediately follows then is what we read in verses 11 and 12, that the Lord created the world and all it contains, and that includes the peoples of all the nations. And as you brought up Psalm 89, Scott, 
I thought of Psalm 24, a psalm David wrote. It begins with the same thoughts we read in Psalm 89 about the Creator. And David states it very clearly, that the Lord owns the people of the earth. Listen to Psalm 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And, you know, finally, I can't help but mention one other passage in which we see the Lord's claim of ownership based on his having created it. Isaiah 66 begins, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. And Isaiah is one of those books, like Job, that has many references to the Lord as the Creator. And right alongside those reminders that he made, and therefore he owns, the world and the people in it are numerous warnings of the coming judgment of God. Isaiah 66, verse 16, coming shortly after the Lord's claim on heaven and earth, says this, to quote just one example, For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. You know, but that kind of statement about God is what motivates the rebellious and arrogant to deny that he is the creator. If they can deny he's the creator, <laughs> then he doesn't have control over creation and he doesn't have the right then to judge creation. Of course, the most important one being he doesn't have the right to judge man. Mm. And you know, even in the book of Job, this sense of attempting to deny God as the almighty is referred to in the attempt then to deny God's claim on man. Listen to what it says in Job chapter 21, verse 13. It says, they spend their days in prosperity. And by the way, this is speaking of the wicked, okay? They spend their mm. days in prosperity, and suddenly they go down to Sheol, and they say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of thy ways. Mm. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain if we entreat him? That question, who is the Almighty? Like, who are you to tell us to do anything? Sounds like Pharaoh. Exactly, Scott. It does sound like Pharaoh, doesn't it? When he was denying Moses' demand that Pharaoh let the people go because God Almighty said, these are my people, let them go worship in the wilderness. And so in our consideration today, we've learned that not only is Shaddai associated with God as creator, it's also his name that's associated with him being the judge because he has the right. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says. Well, Scripture on Creation listeners, it's that time of year again. Time to offer our beautiful God's Creation calendar as a way of saying thank you for listening. And we appreciate receiving your information about how and where you listen to the program. In other words, what station you hear Scripture on Creation on, or if you listen to the podcast. And your comments about or suggestions for improving the program will be sincerely considered. Now, this year, the calendar will be free for the first 100 requests we receive. And after that, I'm asking for $10 plus postage for each calendar. So, 
For $10 in postage, you could have two calendars. But one is free while they last. So, Scott, let everyone know how to request a calendar. The easiest ways are by emailing scripture at scriptureoncreation.org or texting 574-551-1524. You can also call that number, 574-551-1524. If no one answers, just leave a voicemail. And if you leave a voicemail, be sure to talk clearly so we can understand you when you give us your name and mailing address you might even consider spelling it out for us. So let me encourage each of you to contact me for a 2024 God's Creation calendar. They are exceptionally beautiful this year. My favorite photo is January. It has ice-covered mountains in the distance and northern lights dancing above them. Just spectacular. I think my favorite may be the February photo, which is at the other end of the spectrum of God's handiwork. It shows the majestic peaks dotting the arid landscape of the Monument Valley in Arizona. But each month's photo is a pleasure to look at, and the scripture verse with each photo is always inspiring. So once again, Scott, how can someone request a 2024 God's Creation wall calendar or calendars? They can email scripture at scriptureoncreation.org or call or text 574-551-1524.